0: You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you.
1: Yes, it is. You are a human affront
2: to all women, and I am a woman. At some point you gotta decide for yourself who you want to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you.
0: How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon?
2: Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, I'm joined once again by uh, Jack Howard. Jack and I Hello. are still isolated, uh, distantly. I'm still in Hampshire, and Jack is still in the the most exotic, the most exotically designed <laughs> bedroom. What I love about your bedroom because we're looking at, we're looking at each other through Zoom. Incidentally, if you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to see pictures of Jack and me having this conversation, then go to the which I would recommend.
1: Patch. It's a very it, good looking pair. It,
2: it is because the last time we did it, Jack. I think uh, I, I think you. It turned out that you were dressed on your top half <laughs> like James Bond, but on your bottom half you were still in your gym jams. Which was well. That's
1: the thing is, I, I thought I'd make an effort for being on the first ever digital version of MK3D.
2: Yeah,
1: but it only comes up to here, so I, I, I can have the comfort on the bottom, and, and no one had to know. <laughs> but I had to spoil the, the whole trick. Please, for comedy. Tell
2: <laughs> please tell me that you are that you are fully dressed from the. Please tell me that you're not sitting there in your pack just, just, just let me know that you are f- you are fully dressed now.
1: Mark, I like the tension and I'm not going to reveal it.
2: Okay, all right, fine. Um and, so anyway, uh, you- I
1: also I also thought I'd let you know that this this isn't this is a set. You know what I mean, like so <laughs> it's not real. It's not your real bedroom. <laughs> no, no, it's just cardboard cut out.
2: <laughs> anyway, if you'd like to enjoy all this visual uh, delight, then uh, go to the Patreon page and uh, and you know p- become a patron and support the podcast uh, because uh, it would be lovely to have you. Anyway, uh, this is a slightly uh, momentous podcast because um, in a conversation that Jack and I had recently, Jack revealed that he had, yeah, I had a never seen The Exorcist. This was, in fact, the first uh, digital MK3D, um, the first online one. Uh, that Jack revealed this. Again, if you want to see that, you can go. You can find it on the BFI's YouTube channel.
1: It was and- a confession that I thought I had to make at this point because you can't get me because we're, we're separated by... Uh, the law <laughs> so separated by the law <laughs> yeah because we're not allowed to be near each other at the moment i thought it'd be best to tell you a confession like i've never seen the exorcist yeah. via webcam because i felt safer that way you know there's a
2: weird thing because the last podcast that we did um together other than the mk3d uh we did one about um underrated movies and you and one of my favourite underrated movies, I think, it was like up there in the number one spot, was uh, was Grace of My Heart. And you really didn't like it, and I, I got didn't. off my I got off my bike about it a little bit. My word, there was there was a lot there was a lot of stuff on Twitter. It's, it's interesting sometimes. You don't you don't know how harsh you sound, not you mm. one, until somebody on Twitter says, "My God, if I if and somebody actually said to you." If I was in the same, if you and him were in the same room, I would have punched him. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to say publicly, Jack, if I mean I, I, you know, I, 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 if I sounded at all outraged that you about your dismissal of uh, Grace of My Heart, it was indeed in, in, It's you know, because
1: in, I was, and I stand yeah. by everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, but yeah, so no, so, not that didn't make me feel uncomfortable at all. It was exactly what I wanted. You know, it's always just fun to to sort of rile each other up sometimes and, yeah, and yeah. it's nice to see that we're both passionate either way and it didn't get personal it was fine no
2: no of course not no I mean I, I, that's what I mean yeah, my feeling entirely is that, um, is that we know and respect each other enough that we can say you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking that's about exactly but, uh, that's exactly it perfectly fine so just, is, I just want yeah, just, to if, if that
1: person was sat with us and yes. he punched you that would have been a bang out of order because yeah, like, exactly. hang on I'm just having a conversation with my friend <laughs> who are you I don't even know you <laughs>
2: exactly so I just want <laughs> to make absolutely clear to all the listeners okay it's yep. like mummy and daddy love each other it's just every now and then <laughs> they argue <you> know? <laughs> that's so exactly it you've um, so you've now sat down and what we haven't spoken to each other since this has happened you've no. now sat down and watched the exorcist so the first thing I want you to do is I want you to describe for me the circumstances under which you saw it and just just lead me lead me through the whole. Through the whole thing. I'm not even going to My say. experience. To you, Did you like it? I just want you to just okay. tell me what.
1: Tell me what happened? Understood. First of all, I think it's important to note that I watched uh, the version you've never seen. I think because and even though you, you, I um, said, you said I, I said,
2: I said, the, the, you know, the, the the classic, oh, the yep. classic original version is probably the safer bet. But actually, mm-hmm. I like the version you've never seen because it has certain
1: textural things in it that are that aren't in the original correct but you recommended that i would start with the original and that's what i tried to do but i couldn't find it uh anywhere like the, the only version on itunes was the version you've never seen and it was it was very strange to not like yeah it was just very strange i should say
2: on, on my the top shelf of my video shelf in our living room there are literally 20 versions of the exorcist I mean, there are you know, like there only two versions of the film, but it's like, all the same film. There's, there's a VHS, there's a DVD, there's so a. So the covers are a, a bit different. A, yeah, yes, yeah, so exactly. My version is like which which one which one would you like to watch with with the stereo? Oh. The you know, so anyway, okay, so you went for the version you've never seen, which is obviously yes. the version that, that Friedkin went back and uh, and mm-hmm. redid in two thousand one in the year two thousand, right? Yeah. So just to fill in a little bit of background about this. When The Exorcist was first made, William Peter Blatty, who was the author and the producer, um, had certain scenes that he wanted included in the film um, that were in an original assembly of it. When Friedkin was in the final stages of the editing, he cut those scenes out because he felt that he needed the pace of the movie to be speeded up. He was reacting very specifically to a call by John Cowley, who was uh, a Warner executive, who said, look, things like the first medical examination... Take that out. The audience knows she's not possessed. It's called The Exorcist. They they know that. There was um, a conversation on the stairs between Merrin and Karis. What's what's the reason for all this? Why is this all happening? There was an exchange at the end between Kinderman and Karis, which Blatty felt were important to the carpentry of the story. And Friedkin took those scenes out, and Blatty was really, really heartbroken by that. And for years and years, he, he said... Look, I want those scenes to be to be back in, and then when I made the Fear of God uh, with uh, Nick Jones in 1998, we found that those scenes still existed, but uh, Friedkin at that point was still insistent that you know they didn't wasn't, want to go um,
1: another scene that wasn't included in the original wasn't the spider walk gone
2: yeah so this the spider walk was a slightly different uh, case because the spider walk was never because of the wires right yeah it was never in a well it, there was there was a number of problems with the spider walk and in fact if we talk through the film we'll we'll get we'll get to the okay. spider walk when we get we'll to do it. that but um then in 2000 after ages and ages of blatty saying look you know i really want these scenes back in Friedkin agreed and he said the the reason when people are wrong when they call the, the version you've never seen a director's cut they're both the director's cut the first one was Friedkin's cut and the second one was Friedkin's cut many years later and he said to me when I interviewed him about it, he said Bill had been asking me to put all this stuff in back in in the movie for all these years and I just felt okay okay you know why not And then he also put in the spider walk, because obviously by that point there was a way of doing it. And the feeling was, if we're going to put these dialogue scenes in, why don't we put that back in? But the the essential thing is it's character building stuff. It's the first medical examination. It's the conversation on the stairs. It's it's that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. And that conversation on the stairs as well, I, I think I saw, it might be the interview you did, but he said that he didn't feel like he wanted to have that in because um it was explaining the movie and the, and exactly. the movie itself was yeah. saying that so he didn't yeah. want to he didn't feel like it needed a statement but yeah he, he's i quite, think was. i think it's, there, said, I think said, it's good said, for another reason but we'll okay. get we'll get to that sort of stuff
2: right so right so, so set me up okay so you've gone for okay. the version you've never seen which is yep. blatty's preferred cut and actually i think it's now friedkin's preferred cut so so set the scene you're in your front, your front room you but who else is there with you what's the story
1: So it's just me on my own. I've waited as long as I can for it to get dark because it doesn't at the moment. Shut all my curtains, shut all my blinds, got comfy. Got my little notepad because I wanted to have some things that I specifically wanted to say for when I was watching it. I wanted to remind myself. Um, No lights on. Just let it get darker progressively as uh, as, uh, the movie continued so the the room just got darker with me naturally. Um, It was lovely uh, because... It's been a while since I've put my phone away to watch a movie because at the moment, a lot of the time, I'm watching things with people virtually. So like we're texting each other back and forth when things are happening and all the rest of it. But this is the first time for a while that I've sat and watched a movie and been like, I'm watching a movie and that's all I'm doing. I'm just engaging with this. And it's brilliant, Mark. Of course it is. Of course it's brilliant. I mean, I'm I'm not saying anything new here. Like obviously it's a you know, it's held up as the greatest horror movie of all time, 40-something years later. Is it 40, 40,
2: It came out in 73. So, I mean, it's, you know, the anniversaries are flying by. I mean, it's terrifying. Our hmm. documentary of 25 years of The Exorcist was 21 years old when it went back <laughs> onto iPlayer just recently. I mean, those are the anniversaries.
1: Wow. Well that that's the thing is that and that's something I really noticed about it from the word go was that it holds up really well like the filmmaking is it's like pre jaws and when i think about jaws i think that's when spielberg like shifted filmmaking into a much more like i don't know like there's something about spielberg's filmmaking that feels updated there's something when i watch like old movies sometimes like the way that the camera moves or doesn't move or when it doesn't cut like to me feels like very like baggy sometimes whereas spielberg felt like he like sped up storytelling and actually that's how the exorcist feels to me and it predates all that so obviously my perception is off um so yeah the 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 editing in this like immediately caught me off guard going from really silent landscapes and just almost uh hypnotically watching people just hammer and then all of a sudden like you go into a loud noise immediately and it's just immediately putting you off and, and offsetting me. And I'm like, okay, this is the sort of stuff that people are trying to do In when people are saying that horror's got a... Um, a <laughs> I keep thinking of a reconnaissance because you've drilled that word into my head. So now I
2: can't think of the real word. <laughs> Reconna- re- re- reconnaissance renaissance renaissance a renaissance. Yeah, renaissance
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i just keep thinking Sorry. of reconnaissance yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. that's your fault that is um so yeah i i think that when people are saying that horror is having a renaissance right now it's like that's the sort of stuff they're trying to emulate the things that people are gravitating towards i think in hereditary especially hereditary like midsummer is that weird unsettling eerie editing like the filmmaking is is is, is giving you uh a a weird feeling as well because it's just off and I wasn't expecting it to start where it started I I knew that um, Max von Sydow is that his name is that how you pronounce it yeah Um, I mean
2: technically Max von Sydow but yes Max von Sydow is fine
1: I know know that he was a major part of The Exorcist but I wasn't expecting it to start with him and then for him to not be in it for the next hour and 20 or something like that Mm. Um, so it was really really just that that just made me go that's really clever just because otherwise he would have been a deus ex machina but we already met him he was the yeah. first person we met so our expectations were that this is the guy that we're going to be following and he's going to but no the story and also there's another trojan horse because you're thinking oh that this is the story about the little girl who gets possessed when actually overall the is about the priest who's lost his faith and is struggling with guilt over his uh dead mother and her having dementia and coming to terms with the fact that horrible things happen to people and you can't really explain them sometimes and he how he the the horrific thing about it the story being that he it wins that he can't beat it and it takes his life and that is uh, that is just so heavy and such a big story and such an amazing way of telling it because i think that there's obviously a debate Uh, about religion in the movie and it comes across as kind of pro-religious in some ways and that feels to me like very surface level conversation about they feel to me more like icons to play with to tell this more complicated story about a human being dealing with something awful and the best way of telling that story was through these um archetypes of devils and literally devils and and gods um because when you break it down, that's what Batman and the Joker are. Do you know what I mean? Like I saw this I saw this amazing like uh thing recently. Oh, I have to remember the guy's name, Max something maybe, I can't remember. But he did this amazing presentation about why you relate to the Dark Knight so much is because it's playing with archetypes, and Bruce Wayne is the protagonist, and the devil is the Joker, and the angel is Batman. And then when they're having that conversation in the interrogation room, that's them meeting each other for the first time. The same as in Jurassic Park with Jeff Goldblum and um, mm, Sam Neil. No, oh, uh, Richard uh, Attenborough. Richard, Richard Attenborough, I was going to say David Attenborough, which is obviously wrong. Richard Attenborough <laughs> are having a conversation. Every time they have a chat, it's the devil and, and God having a conversation. And that is just using an archetype to put forward a, a larger story. And that's exactly what's happening here, I think, is that they're using those same devil and angel ar- archetypes to explore the torment of um, the uh, Damien. Um, so, okay. yeah, I found it to be a very... Personal story or, or, or very human story, told in an extremely stylized, horrific, eerie, messed up way, and more, way more messed up than I expected for the '70s. That must be a weird thing that I think that things get worse as they get old, like people get more daring as they get older. But this was more out there than most. Horror that I see these days and made more sense like the reason why i don't like hereditary is because all of a sudden it becomes about the uh the the um it becomes like ghosts and stuff it becomes about all of that like supernatural stuff all of a sudden, and I hated that <laughs> because I was really enjoying this horrific ugh, like tense horrible take on uh, an uh, upsetting things that happen to this family and then all of a sudden it goes no it's about supernatural stuff the same way as midsummer is like horrible again this it's gross it's this opening 10 15 minutes of uh, an unhealthy toxic relationship being displayed and then all of a sudden it goes. nah, I'm going to do it about cults now. And I just and I, I go, I'm not interested in this. I'm not as this is not as compelling. Whereas The Exorcist, I think, <laughs> again, not saying anything new because I literally have just seen it. When everyone else has been like, yeah, we've known this for forty years. Um, the <laughs> The Exorcist is doing huge things by telling a story. Sorry, the, the Exorcist is telling a very small story. Horrible upsetting story using huge imagery and huge ideas and I yeah, I thought it was great and filmmaking as well, um, like I say, the editing really stood out to me. Uh that that sort of constant sort of pulsating from quiet to loud just immediately just sort of offsets you. And that continues through the whole thing. And even just imagery from the start as well. I remember Max von Sydow like putting his hand into just a dark hole and that's I mean, well, that's what that's what the movie is I mean, that, that the whole movie is this is the tension of someone putting their hand somewhere and wondering if something's going to grab it um, putting, their hand so in them, dark, putting their hand in a dark hole and going oh <laughs> he's got it and if you're watching it on the Patreon you'd be able to see what we're talking about right now but I'm not going to reveal it for the audio <laughs> listeners this is only this is Patreon exclusive right here <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like that, those are my rambling sort of Thoughts about how I felt about the accident.
0: Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world the world of darkness. Nobody expected it. nobody believed it and nothing
2: could stop it
0: there are no experts you probably know as much about possession as most priests
2: okay so look there's, there's there's so much to talk about um, uh, I mean seriously please. we could try, we can try now, and break it down we can now talk for about sort of four hours so there are, there are many things I want to pick up on first one is um, is something that you said uh, early on which is that the story is about it's it's not about um, it's not about the little girl, and this is absolutely right. One of the reasons that that um, Blatty's sequel Legion isn't about Reagan is that the story isn't about Reagan, and in fact, that scene on the stairs, um, in which in a, there's, in a break in the exorcism, Caris says to Marin, "It makes no sense why this girl," and Marin says, and there have been various longer, shorter versions of this scene, and as it is now. He says I think the idea is to make us you know doubt that God could love us to make us feel ultimately ugly and bestial and the point is that that scene that a bridge scene is a shortened version of a longer scene in the um in the book in which Merin says very specifically the target isn't her it's it's us it's everyone in the house it's everyone who's seeing this and as you rightly remembered, what Friedkin did say this in, in the documentary that Nick Jones and I made, The Fear of God. He said, for me, the whole movie is about what they're talking about. So why are they talking about it? Um, mm-hmm. And they took that scene out. And that scene was for Blatty the thing that was most important about going back into the film, the moment of why is this all happening? Okay, and it's in it, Marin's explanation is it's to make us despair, the 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 demon you know is attempting to make everyone despair and actually and you're completely right the story is about Karis' loss of faith it is not I mean there's a question about whether the exorcist is Max von Sydow or whether the exorcist is Karis I mean actually the exorcist of the title is Max von Sydow it's him standing outside the house on Prospect Street when we first meet him in that sequence that you were talking about in Iraq which again there's a lot of fights about um uh there was a, a, originally, in, in, in Blatty's original screenplay, he'd taken the Iraq sequence out because he just thought it wouldn't work cinematically. He was freaking, he said, you have to put the Iraq sequence back in. And what's really interesting about the Iraq sequence is that it sets up everything that's about to happen in the movie. In terms of the imagery, you get... This thing about you know you get the hammering which mirrors the hammering of the bed later on. you get the woman in the fast-moving droshky with the eye, which prefigures uh, the kind of the old face of uh, Reagan when she gets possessed, and also the guy who's hammering in the smelt who has the whited out eye, which we see later on with Reagan. Also, you get the hammering the
1: right- is very reminiscent of the holy water
2: it is no absolutely absolutely and all the way through you get these these series of images that will then basically recur throughout the film and friedkin says he very specifically constructed the film in the editing as a kind of conversation between light and dark very bright very dark very loud silent i mean the the exorcist is full of loud silence it's full of things going bang 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 and then then a silence afterwards and on a sensory level it it is extraordinary but also, absolutely, you're right that you meet Marin, and he's there at this dig in Nineveh and they, they, um, they, uh, you know, he finds these two, these two things together. One of them is the Pazuzu head, and the other is a, a medallion. Which, incidentally, this is a, an invention of the film. Which is, in, in but they're in the same. Why are they in the same place? It's ancient and modern. What are they? What is What's what are they doing there? And, and that, the best
1: it, thing about that as well is that he seems uneasy about it immediately yeah, yeah like there's that, something in his performance that makes you curious about what's going on because exactly. he's so he's so like moved by it and you can't quite read what it is is it fear is it what, what is going on and, and so there's so of, much story there already but of course what's interesting is the thing that he says with the,
2: is evil against evil because the statue the little statuette, the amulet of pazuzu is something that was used superstitiously as evil against evil. That you have the amulet, and that the amulet of that day will, will will scare off other demons. It's it's a really weird thing. That medallion then appears later on in Karis's dream, and then that medallion appears around Karis's neck, and that medallion is ripped off Karis and ends up being given to Chris McNeil. This is like a kind of weird thing that how can it be in all these different places? And there isn't any explanation other than what he was trying to do was to create the idea that there were two things happening in separate parts of the world, almost in separate time frames. I mean, it's almost like the Iraq sequence is is from an ancient world and the Georgetown sequence is from a modern world. And mm-hmm. those things collide in Karis's dream of his mother. When Karras has the dream in which there is the medal. There are the dogs from the... From the prologue, which he can't possibly have seen, there are all these different images are sort of put together in that dream sequence. There is the flash frame of the demon face. So, my 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 question, however, is: You said that Karis is overwhelmed by 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 grief at the death of his mother, and and he that's absolutely what's what's happened. He um and he says, you know, I think I've lost my faith. And you said, I think. That that your reading of the story was that, that the demon wins, or that the not the the evil force wins. That he is so despairing that he throws yeah. himself to his death. Okay, that
1: is so. To my yeah, that my reading of it is that that that, okay. that he is overwhelmed by his demons.
2: Okay, that is, and this is an interesting point, and I mean this with the greatest respect. That is one hundred percent not what happens. But what's in, <laughs> but what's interesting is that it's also the source of the controversy about putting the the extra material back in. So,
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. So
2: from Blatty's point of view, Blatty was a, uh, a, I I knew Bill well, okay? And Blatty was a Catholic. He was educated by Jesuits. He was a very, very devout Catholic. And he believed he was inspired to to write The Exorcist, having uh, read about a story in 1949 about the possession of a young boy in Mount Rainier, about which we now subsequently know more. And it looks like that story was, bunk but doesn't matter. Bill was absolutely Bill Blatty was absolutely convinced by um this uh, this reported story in 1949 about demonic possession and he did a paper on it in, in in college because he thought that that if if there are demons then there are angels, right? If there if there is such a thing as demonic possession, then there is an afterlife. Then there is a it's like proof, it's proof of the existence of God. Um Bill himself, uh, uh, there's, there's no secret about this. he wrote a whole book about it, was very traumatized by the, the death of his own mother and, um, and he was somebody who was desperate for, um, for proof of, of the afterlife. And at this particular point in his life when he wrote The Exorcist, he was somebody who, who was really, really sort of fascinated by, by proof of transcendence. In his mind and in the, in the narrative of the Exorcist, the novel, and indeed of the script of the film. The journey is this. Karis, who is a priest, encounters the death of his mother and the, the you know, the, what happens to his mother, and he becomes so uh, distraught by it that he loot that he actually says to his friend Father Father uh, um, Father Birmingham, Father Tom Birmingham, who actually is um a priest, um he says, I think I've lost my faith. He is then suddenly confronted with proof of transcendence. The central irony of the film is that Chris McNeil, the mother who is an atheist who doesn't believe in God, comes to believe that her daughter is possessed by the devil. She goes to a priest of faltering faith and says, I want you to perform an exorcism. And he's the one who doesn't believe. She is somebody, she says, I've been to 99 doctors with all their bullshit. They all tell me the same thing. Now you're going to send me back to them because she's run out of options. So Karis then goes and he sees Reagan in this state and he then tr- he d- does everything he can to try and disprove that she's possessed. He sprinkles wa- holy water on her that isn't holy water and she reacts very badly. Okay, so, so she's putting it on. In the novel, there's an awful lot more stuff about him asking, th- you know, did, he says, did, did she know a priest was coming? No, no, I, did, I didn't I did tell her. Well, how did she know? Well, maybe she just figured it out because of the way, you know, blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. And he tries to disprove that she's possessed. And, he, and what happens is, as a result of the encounter with her, he comes to believe that she is. Now, there is a key moment, which is in the film, in which he is asked by his superior, are you convinced that it's real? And he says, no, but I'm convinced that I've made a prudent judgment as that it meets the criteria laid down in in the ritual meaning no i i don't i don't know that i believe it but i believe that i have prudently judged that we should go forward okay then merin turns up merin who we met at the beginning who is a man of unshakable faith who has met this demon before okay we know that there's there has been an encounter from them before we also know that merin performed an exorcism in africa blah blah damn near killed him Merrin turns up and Merrin is the steadfast. There is no debate about this. And, you know, Karis says, I think, you know, I'd like to tell you about the multiple personalities that she's, there is only one. And then Karis wants to tell him about all the conversations he's had with the demon. And Merrin says, first rule, do not engage in conversation with the demon. Do not. You don't do that. That is a demon. She is possessed. And then Merrin dies. I'm sorry this is a plot spoiler, but the film's 40 or years. Then Merrin <laughs> dies. And there is a crucial moment when Chris McNeil says to Karis, Is she gonna die? Because the girl is really ill. She's upstairs in the room and she is dying. And Karis says no. And he goes upstairs and he finds Merrin dead on the floor. So that's it. And the, the demon is there, the girl laughing at him. And he loses it now. The conversation, the question about what then happens in that room, to this day, is something which people argue about, okay? But the, the narrative, as far as Blatty's concerned, is this. He loses his temper. He grabs the girl because he now believes that this is a demonic force. And he grabs the And he says, take me, come into me. And that happens in the film as well. Take me, come into me and in the the novel version is slightly different the novel version is slightly more ambiguous about what about what's happening you just know that that that, that says something like oh you're okay you're very good with little girls try someone your own size okay and then what happens in the blatch is that the demon goes into Karis and Karis throws himself out of the window to get the demon out of the house and to and caris triumphs kairos's faith is restored he falls down the bottom of those stairs um joe dyer is there reads him the last rites says you know are you sorry for all the sins of the world and he does that to say yes and he is saved and he is saved and he i'm sorry to be this blank about it and he goes to heaven that's the the narrative of blatty's story but what's really interesting is that since the film came out, people have watched it and believed that Karis despaired and threw himself out the window through, you know, either well, because... <clears throat> because I, think,
1: I think that that's because, you know, obviously, artistic interpretation and all the rest of it, and does it matter what the author intended, it's how the audience receives it. And that, to me, feels like it's a reading of the film as a religious text the film is, is a re- but the film but that but that's 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 sure. that's that single perspective on the film is yeah a man's struggle with religion and faith and then by the end of it he gains it back enough to be able to transcend exactly. to heaven exactly but my my initial thinking of it, of it wasn't as a religious person because i'm not so yeah. i wasn't really to engage with that journey i was absolutely empathetic towards that idea of losing something so important to you that wouldn't yeah. seemed to make so much sense obviously i could relate to that but to me it felt more like the imagery of a demon and the the, the jumping out of a window is such a suicidal like mm-hmm. thing to do and the idea of the, the phrase like fighting with your demon demons and all the rest of it feels to me more like a uh the, a reading of um his mental health and his mental state after yeah. dealing with the death of his mother, rather than his struggle with whether or not heaven's a place.
0: All right, get back. Do you want to make a confession? Are you sorry for? Are you sorry for having offended God? of all the sins of your past life? himself was
2: And here Jack is why the the film is is brilliant. Exactly. Because you can it is possible to read it in any number of ways. In the novel Kinderman actually does come to come to the conclusion at least for the police purposes kinderman the detective who it's kind of a weird character because kinderman turns up does a lot of investigating and then sort of seems to disappear but um there is a thing in the novel in which kinderman does the, the official police conclusion is that Karis, overcome by grief at the death of his mother mm. uh, committed suicide um but what's really fascinating is that 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 you know, freak there's two voices in this story. One of them is Blatty, who was absolutely, you know, Catholic through and through. And, they, and they had one reading of the story. And then there was Friedkin, who, you know, comes from a Jewish uh, family and at that point was agnostic. Now describes himself as somebody who is, um, you know, open, he's made a very interesting documentary about um, uh, Father Amort, who was the Vatican uh, exorcist. And he's somebody who's you know who's wrestled with the idea that there is more in the world than we know, but he's not doctrinal in any way at all. But what's fascinating about The Exorcist is it's like two voices, two separate voices. One of them, the guy who made The French Connection, the guy who's telling this story as a human story, as a Mm -hmm. you know as a as and which you can, as you just have done, read as a story about somebody's mental health and then there's the other story which is it's a story about tangible uh, you know proof of the existence of god and what's what's astonishing about it because i know how i read the story because you know i know what the story means to me but it's so brilliant to hear somebody re- read it as a different story and it and it you know makes because because some people would say for example well it's clearly a supernatural story she levitates okay she levitates you know, this is not natural but the weird yeah thing but the is, whole
1: film is so dreamlike and strange and all the rest of it that just because it's literally happening in front of you doesn't mean that it's literally, literally happening, happening a in front story yeah and also come on
2: <laughs> yeah ex- no exactly and also crucially. The you know the 360 degree head turn, which of course isn't in the novel. In the novel, her head just she, Chris gets her head knocked, and she thinks that that Reagan looks all uh, all the head, all the way around because it's a reference to Burke Denning's. It's a reference to the fact that Reagan has thrown Burke Denning's out the window. That's why the first in which she says, "You know what she did, your daughter." <coughs> The reason that the head goes all the way round is because Dick Smith had built the dummy to do the 180 degree turn. And they thought, well, we might as well put it all the way round. And Blatty said, that's just, you can't do that. If a head goes all the way round, it'll fall off. So they put a cutaway to Karis, And that cutaway is really important because that cutaway halfway through the head turn suggests that everything you're seeing, it's it's in his head. Of course, Mm -hmm. a head doesn't go all the way round it's he sees something the moment that she levitates it cuts to him like look you know and Max von Sydow is spraying the holy water going and and it, and Karis is just like that and of course that moment is really really important because in the again in the novel that's the moment when he's going this is happening this is actually happening it's, look she's levitating and then immediately he starts thinking, well, yeah, but maybe it's poltergeist phenomenon. Maybe it's telekinetic energy, you know, maybe, you know, just because, just because somebody levitates, it doesn't mean it's demonic possession or maybe she isn't levitating. Maybe it's a mass, maybe it's some kind of shared hysteria.
1: And it's what's fascinating. It could also just be a demonstration of how he's feeling at that point. like, it doesn't need yeah. to be literally a little girl levitating in a bed. It could just be like that's how it feels like to be in this room. It feels like that something that huge is happening.
2: Well, I mean, I you know I agree, and I just I, I just think that it's. I mean, I'm almost I'm almost more delighted that that you like it for as a, for different as, a, to- as, a as a totally different film to the film that I like yeah because because in a way there's
1: similar there's similar things in there and the thing is i enjoy hearing that perspective on it because that is just a reminder again of something that i adore and the reason why i enjoy stories and films so much is because you do bring your own stuff to it and it does allow you to see and learn more about yourself by how you're reading something the fact that i read it as more of a mental health story tells (laughs) me a lot about me Like that, I understand more about my perspective on something now because of how I read this film. That nobody else will, you know, read exactly the way that I did because I'm bringing my own stuff to it. Um, And I think that's that's that to me feels like a better film and a better story than one that's just clear cut. This is what it's about.
2: No, I you know I completely agree. I mean, I think, for example, that the people think about the special effects and you know and all that stuff, but actually, I think that the most powerful scenes in the film are. I think the scene when when Karis is in the bar and he says, I think I've lost my faith, is is brilliant. I think the scene when he has to go with um, the uncle to visit his mother in the hospital is just heartbreaking. I yeah. think the scene when he goes to see his mother in her apartment and... Um, you know and she's you know and she's got the radio on and 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 she's been alone for all that time and he arrives it's just, um I think what I was saying, and he he arrives and she and she opens her eyes and she's been sitting in the and she dear me dear me and you know and that scene is almost I think the best scene in the film because you then what you understand is everything about his guilt and his grief and his you know, I should have been there. I wasn't there. I should have been there. And then, of course, we get the dream sequence, which has got all the the image of his mother, which instantly is in the novel. His mother comes out of the subway, and she she he can't she, he calls out to her, but she can't hear him. And then there's the dogs, and then there's the then there's the thing. And also, there's a brilliant cut after he says. Tom I think I've lost my faith and it cuts to a suddenly a low angle outside the house on Prospect Street with the leaves blowing, and inside Chris McNeil on the phone fucking operator get me that you know and that's when things really go go badly wrong so it is it is about I mean his, his faith is his mental health because of course he is a psychiatrist and a priest yes. the whole point about it, the reason he's brought in is they go well it wouldn't hurt to have somebody with psychiatric background because that's what his character is. He is a priest and a psychiatrist. And it's so fascinating that you can read the film. You can, you, you know, that that for you, the religious part of it is, is, is just the, you know, it's a, it's the to me dressing. It's more like,
1: it's more metaphorical. It's more like what I said at the beginning, which was that there are archetypes to be played with to tell this story about a human being's experience, yeah. rather than it being literally about a religious experience. Uh, because that also helps me as well because I don't believe in any of that stuff, to believe that a girl in a story can be possessed by the devil and that they're not going to be like, no, it's not. There's no debate about whether or not she's possessed. As far as the audience is concerned, she is possessed from word go. Like We can see her transforming. We can see, hear her voice changing. So when all that stuff is happening, it helps me to understand it as, oh, this is a vehicle to tell a different story. And whose story is that? Oh, it's Damien's. Yeah. Like, I can now com- immediately attach all that to his story and link the two and that's what it made that's how it made sense to me the one hope
2: the only hope the exorcist What did you think of the, the the special effects work? I mean, obviously, at the time... incredible. Was, okay, great. Honestly,
1: so, nothing really... In the, in the same way that you can watch Jurassic Park and understand that it was the beginning of CGI and go, this still holds up. Like, looking at 1973's The Exorcist, it, obviously, it's been updated slightly because I watched the 2000 version where they painted out wires and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's just great. Like, there's nothing... Like, the bed shaking, the bed levitating, her levitating if it's green screen or so, I wasn't I was so probably involved with the story that it didn't even really make a difference to me and so sparingly used and like beautifully photographed that it just works in the yeah. same in the same way that Jurassic Park does it just still works that t-rex at night scene just still works
2: there's no there's no digital work on the special effects except for the spider walk and that the spider well, walk that's it. I mean the the rest of it is all everything you see happening is happening. I mean it's really. I think
1: that the 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 image of that woman upside down opening her mouth and blood coming out is is just going to be like as far as you know some of the other images I had seen before. That's a new one that's burned into my brain now. So yeah, that's well, good. So that's not in
2: the original version. I'm just going to yeah. stop my phone. So that obviously is not in the original version. And that weirdly enough, it's um. It was it was an outtake in the original version of the Spider Walk. She comes down the stairs and she sticks her tongue out and chases it. somebody. She flips over and she runs around and she and she licks Sharon's ankle. Um and they couldn't they couldn't make the they just couldn't make the thing work. It it looks clunky. Nick and I put a version of it together in The in Fear of God. They then dis, had this second out, which actually both Blatty and Freakin had forgotten about, about doing, which is that she comes down the stairs and then Opens her mouth and this, the and the blood comes down her face, which is the version that's in the film now. Though the quick moment when you when you see her coming down the stairs, you could see the wires, and the wires have been digitally taken out. So, but it is still a physical stunt. It's just it a physical stunt with those wires removed. The interesting thing is in um in the original version, and this is one of the reasons when the when they couldn't make the spider walk work, it actually enabled one of the best cuts in the film that is now not in the new version which is this that um after chuck turns up okay and chuck says you know chris comes home the windows open reagan's in her room burke's not there sharon comes back from the chemist right and she says where you know where were you you left reagan alone in her room and she said no i didn't i left her with burke oh he's you know Burke because Burke's a drunk we know all that Burke's gone out okay and then um, and she says you know how was it with the doctors oh we've got to go and find a shrink we've got to do something you know and she's despairing okay she says we've got to find a psychiatrist she's despairing then there's a knock at the door this is all in both versions of the film and Chuck comes in and he says I guess you heard and she says what and he says Burke's dead and she looks at him like and he and he says he, he must have been drinking he fell down the he fell down the stairs by the side of the house and Chris go she's like it's like this one body blow too many right and she sort of screams and she puts her head against the wall and she goes, "No you know like bangs her head on the wall okay and it fades in the original version and it fades to black she just literally like, yeah. and the f- f- fades to black and then what you hear is Reagan. When I touch your forehead, open your eyes, and then the camera, and then and it's straight into the psychiatrist scene. Mm-hmm. In the version now, she goes boom, like you know thing, and then she turns round, and then she looks up, and then <gasps> and then she sees Reagan coming down the spider walk. And Blatty always said the problem is that the the, 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 the the scene's got three climaxes to it. Yeah, and I, and I I'll be honest with you, I think. That although the the spider walk was a great thing to find, then we could I was the f- first person to see the the footage of the spider walk for 25 years when when it was in the, in the Warner and we saw just the outtakes and the bits and I didn't see the blood man I saw the original version of it and it was like really creepy. But actually, in the construction of the narrative, I really loved that clip when she's this last thing that Burke has done is she closes, and she closes her eyes and it's like the film closes its eyes. And then mm. you hear the psychiatrist go, Reagan, when I touch your forehead, open your eyes. And then with are And I think that
1: sort of stuff as well adds to the what I was saying about the dreamlike nature of the film. Because a lot of it is just Reagan does something, the demon does something horrible. We then cut away to something else. We then go back into her room. And it's gotten worse somehow. And then she'll maybe come out of her room and something else will happen and it will cut back to her room and she's just back in the bed again. So this is this constant resetting of... And you're not thinking about the idea of what's happening in between because that's not what the film is about. No. It is about like these little shocking, dreamlike, strange, nightmarish moments that then when... Because when she spider walks down the stairs, the next time you see her, she's, she's somewhere else. And I'm like, how, how did... What say? did you do in between? Like, did you ask her? Like, what was that about? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's none of this, like did you filler ask stuff. Her what that was
2: about? Do, <laughs> Reagan? Why mean? isn't she telling
1: anybody that she 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 walked backwards down the stairs? What a bizarre <laughs> thing to leave out.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I mean, that's the the other thing is the one of the other reasons that, that you know that scene kind of probably didn't make the original cut was it was I mean I remember Marcel Vekutair saying this. It was almost like after that you're going to speak to a psychiatrist. She literally just walked backwards down the stairs. It she's
1: not mentally. And that's the thing is that like I always think about movies that are that can be parodied. And I think that this film is you know ripe for parody and has been parodied and referenced over and over and over again and it's because it's taking itself seriously as in terms of a story because it's not questioning these moments and saying this literally just happened why are you not doing this because it's just showing you all that matters in terms of an emotional arc for characters that are in the story rather than pointing out that we know this is silly like it's really taking its ideas seriously
2: the other thing is i think like one of the best scenes in the film for me is the scene when when kinderman interviews chris and it's a scene in which you know a, it's the scene in which Chris realises that Reagan has thrown Burke Dennings out the window. But it's all said through what isn't said. Because, you know, Kinderman turns up and he's, you know, Miss McNeil, I can think, you know, I don't know if this Mike turns up and he stays with you for five minutes and he leaves. It's unlikely, you know, maybe a part, maybe somebody. How could it be? It could be one way. Maybe if somebody came calling, you had a part. And in the novel, there's a whole thing about suspicion being thrown on Carl who earlier on we've seen Burke Dennings calling a Nazi. and I am Swiss! You know, all that stuff. And in the novel, there is a whole subplot about Carl and Elvira having a daughter, Carl and Willie having a daughter called Elvira, who is, it's the crucible of good thing. It's, you know, evil is the crucible of good, that some good comes out of this that nobody in the the house ever knows about, which is that Elvira stops being a drug addict and he's got into a rehabilitation (laughs) programme. Anyway, that's not in the film. But that scene in which um, they're sharing cups you know he, she, she's making him a cup of tea and her hand is shaking because she's realizing she's realizing from what he's telling her that right Ra- that Ra- she, that reagan has thrown Bo- Dannings out the window mm. and she's just desperate for him to leave and she's desperate for him to not ask her any- and then there's that moment when she says more coffee And he should say
1: no. And he says, yes, please. And he goes, he's not going. And then you find out that the reason is because he's also a fan of her and likes just being in her company. And it's this very strange, that's a horrific reveal as well. That's the thing I liked about it is that there's this constant, on her, especially for the first portion of it, like the horror is in the reaction to things. Like the reason why those things are scary, really that are happening to this little girl is because you can see when she's being operated on, when she's be- having the needle put in her neck, you can see on... that You're obviously cringing at the, the imagery anyway, but you can see on the mother's face yeah. just how horrific this is for her to watch someone like that, yeah. to, someone as close to you go through something like that, and to not understand it, and to be afraid of it, and to be afraid what it means about her, that if it's not supernatural, what does it mean about her brain? Um,
2: and yeah. also also every every event, every horrible event... Is actually um, this this is funnily enough a kind of a, a Spielberg connection. Um, what happens is you see the camera will run down the run down the corridor towards that door. Okay, like every time they open that door, what oh my god, what what's it going to be this time? Okay, mm. runs down the door like the crucifix scene, which is the worst. Run down the door, door opens. The first thing you see, you her see face. something is
1: her going. <gasps> Yeah, and then you and then you see what it is, and, and I think time- that's doing two things. I think that's sort of placing you with her, so that you, you you're you're it's your about is, her. It's, it's about, about her, but it's also building more suspense because you're like, let me see it, let me see it. Like there, there's 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 two things going on there, like, and it's so brilliantly demonstrated.
2: But it's also weirdly enough, it's a precursor of that thing that um that that happens in Jurassic Park or happens in it's it's the before you see the dinosaur, you see either Sam Neill or Jeff yeah. Goblin going. Yeah, you know it's you. Be, you believe what you're about to see because you believe that they believe it. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, and it's and it is it is it's a sort of it. It, it happens in Jurassic Park a lot. That the thing that sells you the special effect is the re, the reaction on everyone's face. And, yes. of, and of course in The Exorcist it is the crucial thing that it's not her. It's not about her. I mean the point is, there's a lovely line in, in the novel, which isn't in the film, in which um uh Chris McNeil says um says to, 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 to Joe to, to Father Joe about Karis, he never met her. You know, Karis has been in that room all the time. But that's not Reagan. And there's a thing when you know when that scene, which is in the trailer, in which she says, "You show me Reagan's double, everything down to the way she dots her eyes," and I and I know in an instant it's not my daughter. And I'm telling you that thing upstairs is not my daughter. And as I said, there's that lovely callback to it, and then when he says she, he never met her. And I, you know, I said, well, I mean, I, I. And I believe me. I think about this film a lot. Um, oh, I know, and uh, and I think that those things, in the end, those things are are the things that make it work. The things that you're talking about, the the psychological depth of it, the character depth of it, the fact that you can read it as a story that is not about, mm. you know, uh, God and angels and,
0: and supernatural, the, and, and yeah, yeah, that you can just read it as a,
2: as a psychological study is is what makes it is what makes it genius.
0: You ask me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find. You showed me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that
2: I guarantee you this, if you watch it again mm. and uh, and you know, maybe maybe you will and incidentally I'll give it a while, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but have a look if you do, have a look at the original cut, the yeah. seventy three cut, because now you've seen find the, it. the fuller I'll Jack I've got a copy. Send you one of the copies. Whichever. You you want it Betamax, you want it VHS, you want it... I'll send you a copy. You'll be okay. But I guarantee you this, it'll look like a different film. Mm. Because every time... And the most amazing thing for me is this... I went I did all this work and I wrote a book I did a radio thing I did the the, the documentary and I got the outtakes and the sound tapes and the the dummy and I interviewed everybody especially I took that film apart and then you play it and it works and there are mm. so many things that you take them apart and then they don't work anymore you know oh you, you know you now you know that it's a rubber shark but then ne- it never matters because Jaws is a work of genius. Yeah, I know it's a rubber shark. I know the, how that shot was made. I know that that orca didn't that... And then you play Jaws and it works.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There is a certain small number of films that you can literally take them apart. And um, there's a there's a brilliant uh, line in a Billy Bragg song about um, the temptation to take the things we love apart must be resisted because it's you never put them back together again. And, you know, I know there, is, there are films for which that is true, but The Exorcist isn't one of them. It doesn't matter how much you dismantle it. When it, when you press play, it, just, it works. just works.
1: And I think that that's the thing here as well, is that I had been thinking about this, obviously, for the last 12 hours or something before talking about yeah. the movie. And I'd not noted down really any of the stuff that I'd said. The the stuff that I'd noted down was just things that had happened or little thoughts, but the reading that I had hadn't been expressed until the the microphone was on. And so it's clearly was working as a story and as a film, and then I've felt those things and and sat with those feelings and those thoughts for 12 hours, then opened my mouth, and that's the stuff that's come out, because clearly that's what it's connected with. Um, And you're right, I think it will connect with a different thing the next time I watch it.
2: I th- well, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm just delighted. It's just, it's just great because it's like, it's like, it's like we love, we love the same film, but we, but we love a different film. I mean, that's yeah. that's, that's that sh- is the. And then again, this comes back to something that freaking has always said. He said, you know, you take from the Exorcist what you bring to it, and, uh, and and I think that's
1: true with the best films. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That's the reason why I think. Marriage Story worked so well for me. It's the reason why Lost in Translation works because you bring something to it. It's the reason, you know, why You Were Never Really Here works so well. And now I see what you're talking about with the little references to You Were Never Really Here that are within, sorry, the references to The Exorcist that are within You Were Never Really Here. Although Lynn Ramsey's probably half (laughs) taking the piss by saying she doesn't know. Um, Yeah. But yeah, like I see all this stuff now and I think a lot of these films, the best films in my opinion are the ones that it, it, it's difficult you can't construct it really because it's all based on feeling is that when you're watching it you feel like it's personally talking to something within you an experience you've had or something you've felt
2: yeah yeah I, you know i love this the, the other thing is i mean we should finish because we've been going on for ages but the, the other thing which i which i love apart from apart from everything that i love about it i love <laughs> you know i love the georgetown setting i love the the iraq prologue i i love the 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 way in which the music is used so sparingly but I love that the the, the little co- jokey conversation between, after Kinderman has said to Karis, you know, this is this is the work of this is like a satanic thing. This is like you know you did a paper on witchcraft and blah 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 blah. And he and he's basically saying to Caris, look, it's a sick priest, okay? It's somebody in the priesthood, somebody with a grudge against the church, okay? And Karis says, you know, and they they've had the little discussion about. A priest would have come and confessed to him, and he says, "Is there anyone you know that kind of thing?" And and Karis says, "You know, look, it, it it's it's that's confidential." And Kinderman says, "You know, I don't want to worry you with the uh, semantics, but you know, a a a a priest in sunny California, no less, was uh, you know was sent prison for not telling the police what he knew about about somebody, you know." And Karis says, "Yeah, I, I mention it only in passing." And Karis says. I mentioned it only in passing, I could always tell the judge it was a matter of confession because that is different. Okay. So they have this kind of really fractious little thing. okay. And then as they, at the beginning, when they first meet, um, Kinderman has said, you look like you're John Garfield in, in, in body and soul. You're like you know, And, then, and as he leaves, he says, I lied. You look like Sal Minio. And Karis and turns around and it's one of the very few moments in the film in which we see Karis laugh.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and it's this big beaming is that and there's a the bit early on in the campus but it's one of the very few moments in the film in which we see caris laugh and this and it's only a fleeting shot it's, i lied you know i can
1: understand say. why as well because you've seen it so many times That those are the little details that when you know something so well those are the things that stand out to you as as like oh there's a little a little moment of who he is like or who he was or who he can be just yeah. there yeah. just for a f- just for a moment and with the rest of the film you're seeing him in a, a, you know tremendous amount of pain so when you see that so often i think that then you see those little moments and you think there he is there's the there, there's the real version of himself before he got caught up in all this stuff
2: yeah yeah that's exactly it that, that phrase it uses who he was that's it you see who he was you, you just you see who he was and it's um and it's and it's and it's lovely and i think actually that's my favorite shot in the whole film it's yeah. just that one moment and he's turning he's he's got the the you know the wind and he and he just turns and it's basically like maybe the shot's maybe like a second long and he just turns and he laughs I like. It wouldn't
1: have been as good if it was any longer. No, no, it, exactly, because
2: it, it, it's because you don't even notice it. But it's just anyway. Well, yeah, look, Jack, this has that? been this this has been this has been great, and I'm I'm just I'm delighted that you got so much out of it. Um, not least because you know it just makes me think um, that I'm
1: I'm still right about it. I'm still yeah, I'm are. still right. I think you know? I watched it and I went, well, obviously it's brilliant. Like, <laughs> obviously, like from the be- from the beginning, I was like, oh yeah, this doesn't. Even feel like it was an old film. Again, I keep comparing it to Spielberg. It feels like Jaws. Like you watch Jaws and you go, this was made in 1977?
2: Six, no. Six, seven? Five even, is it Jaws? 75, 75. Right.
1: You watch it and you just go, this could have been made this this year. Like, obviously the hairstyles are different, but that's kind of it. (laughs) The filmmaking holds up and the storytelling holds up. Like, whereas, like I said, I watched, I've been on a heist kick at the moment. And I watched uh, The the Sting.
2: Oh, yeah, I love The Sting.
1: I didn't love it. It was just, it felt, it felt like a warm-up to the films that we get now. Like, not entirely. But, like, The Sting feels to me like a baggy, like... Yeah, well, I look,
2: <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen The Sting in a very long time because you know, you know the thing about The Sting and The Exorcist, don't you? What's that? The Exorcist lost the Best Picture Oscar to The Sting.
1: Oh wow that's just completely coincidental that I've brought that up I didn't even mean to start like a 40 something year old beef but yeah I would have put the Exorcist any day. <laughs> any day
2: Well yeah and that's it that's the kind of you know I love the sting as I saw it when I was a kid and you know I haven't seen it since it came out um uh, and I'm sure I'm sure now it is baggy and everything but um but yeah there's no way there's no way on earth that the sting is better than The Exorcist. Like no Gr- way. It's like How Green Was My Valley in Citizen Kane. You go, well, I like How Green Was My Valley. It's not better than Citizen Kane, though, is it? It's like, you know, let's be honest about this. All right, Jack. Well, listen, lovely to speak to you. And uh, Nice to speak to you, too. Yeah, you know, the, the next thing we should do is you should give me, we should, we should do a similar one the other way around. You should tell me a film that you love that I haven't seen, that I should then, I, kinda, I owe you one now.
1: But how how am I gonna find a film that you haven't seen?
2: I'm sh- I'm Jack. I'm sure there's loads of stuff that I haven't seen. Have a think about it, all right?
1: But not, okay, I'll but- have a think about it. And even if it's something like because I, I wanted you to rewatch um something in our in, in recently, I mentioned something that I wanted you to rewatch because you hated it. I think it was Burn After Reading. Like, I'd, oh, I'd, I'd
2: like to talk about that. Okay, fine. I'd like to- Right. Okay, that's what we'll do. I will go alright great it, and also that's quite easy because it's like 82 minutes long right it's really short yeah yeah
1: fine it's lovely it's it's, it's it's in and out it gets the job done
2: I will do burn after reading for you okay and then we'll and then we'll reconvene I guarantee lovely. I guarantee you it's not as good as The
1: Exorcist it's not as good as The Exorcist but it's fun alright <laughs>
2: Well, there we are. That's uh, me and Jack talking about uh, The Exorcist. If you want to see a video version of this, as we said before, go to our Patreon page, including finding out what on earth that thing was about Merrin's hand crawling around uh, in the dark. Thanks ever so much for listening. Stay safe, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, keep watching the skies. And tell your friends, if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe. Um, We do rely on your patronage and we're very grateful for it. Thank you very much.